Would you open your Bibles to Mark 2? I want to read to you uh, from verse 18 to verse 22. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. But no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. When, um, when Jesus was going about his ministry, he would meet with two very opposite reactions from people. On the one hand, people were often amazed and in wonder, I suppose, a kind of awe at this man, that the way he taught, the things he said, the things he did, the miracles, the authority, the way he carried himself, it often elicited from people an, a sense of amazement and wonder and, and, uh, and an attraction, I suppose, a kind of magnetic pull to him as a result. But at other times, people were very confused, baffled. Sometimes that would be mixed with offense or even anger, but there would be a more negative reaction um, because he, he didn't seem to... To, to fit with their expectations on so many, in so many ways. I was mentioning to you last week, and I think it's really important to underline, that part of the reason for that is that he, he's not bound by human expectation. Jesus had this perfect sense of assurance of who he was, of what he came to do, of his mission on earth. And you will never see a man more free from the fear of man, from the pressure to conform to people, and so when you see the way he conducts himself and acts, there is a pure, unfiltered devotion to God being lived out in the expression of his life. Now, for us, that means that we also, I would, you know, one of the most dangerous things for us as Christians is that if you are indeed a Christian, is that you, you become apathetic to, to the stories and realities of Jesus' life, that it all just blends into a kind of flattened, um, undramatic thing. And the reality is that, that we ought to at one time be amazed, but also that there ought to be things in Christ's life that confuse us. And it seems to me that growth in, in reaction to and in learning from who Jesus is comes at the intersection of those two things. And we, we have fresh wonder at the things he said and did, but also confusion. It's only when you're grappling with questions that you begin to grow yourself. And it seems to me it's at the intersection of those two things that we are forced to confront ourselves and to change and to really reflect on who we are and, our, and whether we're seeking to walk in his way. And so I hope we'll, we'll start rekindle a little bit of that in a new way this evening and, and, and as we walk through this gospel. So what's going on in this story? The confusion that makes people stop and ponder is that here are, here are these men, they're disciples of John, disciples of the Pharisees, a more intense group of men you could not have found in first century uh, Israel. And they are baffled because when they look at Jesus and his disciples, at times they looked 
they looked a little bit lax, a bit lazy in their expression of devotion to God. They don't seem to be going along with the right rules and going along with the right expressions of devotion. And Jesus, particularly in himself, was not necessarily teaching people to do the stuff which everyone else said was necessary for holiness. Now, to be clear, this is not because Jesus was like so many Christians in our day and age, and so many ministers in particular, who seem to be tripping over themselves to become more relevant to the culture, to the point of downplaying, dismissing, and changing all kinds of elements of the Christian faith in order to conform themselves and make Christianity more palatable to the world around them. Jesus wasn't like that. That's not the reason that they find him not fasting on this occasion. Rather, he was so attuned to the reality of what God's purpose is in the world, and particularly to this fact, that his arrival on planet Earth had changed everything. These men needed to catch up and get with the program, as our American friends like to say. (laughs) They had to get with the program because things had changed with Jesus' arrival. And they didn't understand the absolutely cosmic changes that had taken place in God's intentions and his plans. Not his intentions, but certainly in the working out of his plans on earth through the arrival of Jesus. So this is what we need to dig into. The first question I want to ask of you is this. What was Jesus doing that was new. Because the contrast seems to me, as it so often is in the Gospel of Mark, to be between the religious way of practicing devotion to God and the Gospel. Religious way of practicing devotion often looks deeply compelling from the outside in. You ever see somebody who has a pure, passionate, extreme zealous devotion to their faith, whatever faith that is. There's something really admirable about that. It looks powerful from the outside in, doesn't it? You see it and you think, wow, I, you know, I wish I could be more self-controlled and more devoted. And certainly from the outside in, religion can look compelling in that sense. The gospel, on the other hand, the Christian message, which comes in and tells you, listen, God loves you. He's done everything and you need to receive that, can look so weak and insipid. It's one of the great criticisms that gets leveled against the Christian faith, isn't it? That people say, look, how can you expect people to change when all of the kind of, the weight of law and of, of, of all, the, all the instructions that kind of seem to be bled out of this thing? How can you expect it? What happens? People receive grace from God. Doesn't that just mean they can do whatever they want? And here's Jesus Seemingly living in a way which, to them, looked like a weak expression of devotion to God. Because he wasn't fasting. Now these guys, you know, they fasted intensely. They were, you know, there was one, one day in the year that the, the Old Testament law called for, for people to fast. But the disciples of the, the Pharisees and the disciples of John were probably engaging in the Pharisaical teachings, which is that they practiced fasting twice a week. It was on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And it wasn't some... A version of the 5-2 diet. This was, this was an absolute intense uh, conviction that they needed to, to not just be holy, but to shoot beyond holiness to like awesomeness uh, in the, the way they express their devotion to God. And here's Jesus coming along, and he just seems quite casual about all of their expectations. And, and it confuses them. But the reason is that he was doing something extraordinary and new. And let me show you a few of the ways it was new. It's new... And this experience of love. 
I think that's kind of inherent or implicit in how Jesus answers them. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? See, religion without love is very easy to slip into. You can have a faith that is devoid of, of heart, I suppose. You might look intense from the outside. You may be practicing your faith in all the right ways. You may be doing the right things. But it's possible that your heart is not, is not pulsating with the love of God. For him primarily, but also for fellow man. This is what Paul was talking about in this passage, which is so famous in 1 Corinthians 13. Where he said, if I have prophetic powers... And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. In other words, like, like an oracle in your ability to know the things of God. And he says, if I have all faith, so that's to remove mountains. Remember, that's what Jesus said. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. He says, if I had that kind of extraordinary faith, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The dangerous thing about faith without love, and it is dangerous, is that it is so, it's so subtle to fall into this. And the danger is you, you slip into a kind of self-deception in which you think that because of your piety, your, your faith is real. And what the scriptures show us is that God didn't want a kind of hard piety that becomes crusty and rigid and brittle. He wanted people who were captivated by the reality of Jesus and whose hearts were, were beating with love for him. I think that's what's implicit in how he describes himself as the bridegroom who's arrived. Jesus came to offer himself a, offer a relationship of love with God. And I want to ask you, is it true of you? Has Christianity been to you kind of a bore I suppose or something that feels dead and cold and lifeless because if it is then what you're doing is, is more like the Pharisees and the disciples of John and what Jesus came to do was offer you his, himself the bridegroom arrived it was a new experience of love here's another thing it was a new experience of joy he said to them he asked that really provocative question can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Have you ever been to a wedding where there was a shortage of food? It happened to me on one occasion. It ruined the entire day. I was at the back of the queue at this buffet, and they hadn't ordered enough food. It absolutely, I couldn't believe it. I actually left the wedding early. I had to go <laughs> grab a McDonald's on the way out. Wedding days are not days for, for, for skimping. This is a word to anyone who's thinking about getting married or getting married in the future. Be generous. You never, you never, your guests want to feel treated. There should be abundant supplies of wine and meat and all good things, okay? And Jesus says, the bridegroom's come and he, it, it is wrong that you don't celebrate and have joy when the bridegroom's arrived. Now, the trouble is that religion often is a gloomy affair, like a, like a wedding without wine. And... And unsurprisingly, because it's often associated with the things which steal joy from our hearts. Things like the sense of ought. I ought to do this. 
and you, you, you feel your back stooping just a little bit with every new ought that's placed on your shoulders. The, often, the, the, the experience is often found in, in religious contexts of, of, uh, of comparison and of, of, the, of the associated judgment that comes with comparison because comparisons always give way to judgment, don't they? It's, you only compare things in order to make a judgment. And so, so often religion brings about a kind of judgy atmosphere, I suppose. And you can't really be joyful in that context. And with that, just lashings and marinating in guilt, just, just for good measure. And so what were, these guys were doing, you know, with the way they practiced their faith was that they had all this kind of ought, comparison, judgment, and guilt weighing them down. And Jesus says, we're not here to fast. We're here to rejoice because, look, I've arrived. I'm here Happiness in faith comes from being near to Jesus. If you've not experienced joy in your Christian walk, there may be something deficient in your relationship with the Lord who saved you. He came to bring a new experience of love, a new experience of joy, and a new experience also of power. I think that's really clear in the two images, the kind of metaphors he uses of the cloth that's, that rips apart from, from the other cloth and of this... This, uh, this, this filling with wine. The reason why I think it speaks to us of power is because so often religion was a tedious, difficult, defeating affair. You set your mind to try and improve yourself and before long you feel weary, ragged and tired out by the, the sheer effort of it. Jesus spoke so compassionately to that problem. When he said to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he wasn't talking about people who are tired from their day jobs. He wasn't talking about people who are tired from looking after toddlers who aren't sleeping at night and all the rest of it. He was talking to people who were tired from the stooping, bowing, wearying effects of trying to live a better life. And what he came instead to offer you was this this wine. Remember how Paul puts it in Ephesians 5. He says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That, you know that warming effect that can come from having a good glass of wine, where it feels, you feel it even into your extremities. In a sense, it's comparable to the experience of what happens when God's Holy Spirit comes into you and you, you really begin to encounter him and he fills your life. It's the warming effect of his power and of his presence in your life. And all of this, Jesus is saying, is new. That dry, crusty, pious way of living is a thing of the past. What I've come to do instead is replace it with love and affection to know God with your heart and not just with your head with joy so that you, you feel happiness being a Christian and with power so that you are able to actually change in the ways that you have tried to change but have so far not been able to. Now, how are you meant to react to this new thing? Because I think, obviously, it's implicit. We have, to, we have to engage with, what does this mean for me? Or else you slip back into the old religious way of the disciples. And I think what Jesus is saying here, and what's, what these pictures tell us about this, the cloth and the wineskin, is that he's ruling out any possibility of, there be, of your, your life transformation being a kind of 
iterative process. But rather he's saying that what he came to do was to bring about something completely new. To iterate is to try to bring tiny tweaks, small improvements, so that over time you can see a thing improve. And Jesus is saying, by the way he's speaking to these disciples, he's saying, that's not my intention for you. The two images he uses, one is of cloth. You know how if you've had you know, an old t-shirt or whatever, it's been washed so many times, the thing eventually gets smaller and smaller, doesn't it? And uh, until it shows every lump and bump, and you, you can't wear the thing anymore. But that's what happens through cloth. I once, I've had a couple of wool jumpers before, which my wife has washed, and they come out like this big, like able to fit my son and not me anymore. They don't fit this body. And, and uh, this is what happened with cloth, and it's been the same throughout history. Now, Jesus is saying, look, if you took a new, the new thing and you try and patch up the old thing with the new thing, as soon as that goes into the wash, the new one will shrink and pull away. And the picture he uses of the wineskin was that, you know, in, in the ancient world, the way that they would, they would, they would uh, store wine was they would skin an animal. Let's say you skin a goat, and you, you get the whole piece of skin off whole, and uh, you just you just seal up the little feet holes, and the bum hole, and the head hole, and then you put your you put your grape juice in there, and um, orig- initially the leather is kind of supple and stretchy, but over time it gets more and more brittle. And more and more liable to crack and creak. And, uh, but you ever fermented anything? If you ever ferment something, the byproduct of fermentation, when, when yeast, react, when yeast is, 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 is digesting sugars in any fermenting process, is that you get loads of gas. You get, you get carbon dioxide. You get fizz coming off. So you put new grape juice into an old brittle wine skin, and the whole thing just explodes. Boom. <laughs> now... When Jesus is depicting the new way that he's bringing into, into, into birth through his arrival, what he's doing is he's ruling out a number of approaches as impossible. One is that he's ruling out a kind of selective approach to, to himself. It's very common for people, and I've seen this so many times, to admire elements of Christ and his teaching and to want to take parts of it and incorporate it into their vague sense of spirituality. Now we live in a day and an age where people are very reactive against any kind of definition or doctrine or teaching or standard or rule of what kind of what, what it means, what truth is. They prefer spirituality in the vaguest, mushiest, almost jelly-like terms. But within within that, they might say if you're a spiritual person, you might think, well I like this bit of what Jesus taught. And you say, well I, you know, the bit about not judging people or the bit about loving your neighbor this all sounds great yeah i'll take a bit of that and i'll take a bit of that and i'll put it into my my soup of spiritualness whatever you want to describe it as and the trouble with that is it makes you the arbiter of truth over against jesus himself and it's not an option jesus doesn't want you to take some of the new thing and put it into the old thing like a patch on an old garment he's not come to to give us some kind of you know, lifestyle blog, where you can, you know, subscribe by email and you get nine new tips on how to live a better life and be the best version of yourself. And you think, well, I'll take that bit and I'll take that bit and I'll patch my life up a bit better. He ruled that out altogether when he talked in this way. He's come to conquer you, actually, to destroy the old, to give birth to the new. He ruled out a selective approach. He also rules out a gradual approach. What I mean by that is that some people... And I think this is true for all of us to an extent, but 
you certainly wrestle with this anyway. That you, know, you think about your, your life, if you're a seeker, if you're somebody who's not a Christian, you, you might be drawn to Jesus, but one of the great tensions that you've got to wrestle with is that as much as you might be drawn to, to what he's offering you, you also are drawn to the way things are right now. There's parts of your life you do not want to let go of. And so you might think, well, life, you know, spiritual life is like a sliding, like a spe- a sliding spectrum. I just need to gradually, over time, just slide towards spirituality and, and knowing Jesus. And okay, occasionally I'm going to slip back into the old ways. But eventually I'll just nudge the thing along a little bit. And you take a more gradual approach to faith. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that it's incredibly dangerous to think that way for the simple reason that it will tear you apart. I've seen this many times as a pastor where I've seen people who are, who are drawn and pulled and, and attracted to two worlds that are basically in opposition to one another. You feel the very tear in your being and in your soul. There's kind of a rend and a rip inside of you. And people who are trying to have both are usually the unhappiest Christians you'll ever meet. If they are Christians. It's true of you, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. When Jesus said, I came to do a new thing, he's ruling out that way of approaching faith. It's not like you can just have, you can gradually slide your way towards Jesus, but keep hold of the old stuff. You can't do that. It'll rip you apart. And he's also ruling out what you might call a syncretist approach, where you're trying to, you start with the, the old religious assumptions about how you please God. You think about what, what is devotion, what is piety, it's, it's trying to be better. It's trying to be good. And then you just incorporate some of Jesus' teaching into that. Because when you read Jesus' teaching, you discover pretty quickly that his standard is so unbelievably high. It's not just, it's, it's perfection. So to try and think, well, I, I'm just going to incorporate Jesus' teaching in my life and walk on his road, you are going to destroy yourself in the process. You will explode like the, the animal skin with the fermenting wine. And Jesus was saying to these disciples who'd been walking that old road of religion of saying, if I do these things and live these ways and obey these laws and try and very hard to, to, to dot all my I's and cross all my T's, then I'll be holy unto God. And they hear some of Jesus teaching. He teaches things like, if you even lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Or if you even get angry with your brother, you've committed murder. And you hear that kind of a teaching, and it's like the new wine that goes into the old brittle leather bag and explodes the whole thing. The New Testament teaches us instead, and I think this is what is the heart of what Jesus is saying here. That all these approaches are ways of improving the old life when what Jesus wants is to completely discard the old life. It's like restoring a car. You know, if you, you have a beat up old car, you want to keep the thing going, you might, you might replace parts. Eventually it gets really expensive. You try and keep it roadworthy. You place the, resp- the suspension. You repair the bodywork. You try and keep this thing, improve this thing so that at least you can keep driving it. And a lot of people, that's, like, that's the way they practice faith. And the, the wrong assumption there is that you think there's something salvageable in your life. And what Jesus rather came to do was he came to conquer, destroy, and kill so that he could raise, renew, resurrect This is the language the New Testament uses of what this new life in Christ is. It's new birth. 
is regeneration, is becoming a new creation. It means that Christ is calling for total transformation of life as he infuses you with his love, with the joy that he offers, and with the power of his Holy Spirit at work inside of you. I want to ask a last question. If Christianity is better, if it's new, if what Jesus came to offer was so superior to the old way, you know, one of the questions that we're going to wrestle with is why is there still so much imperfection? Because as Christians, we, we personally, we felt joy, but we've also felt frustration. And you see it in your own life, you see it in the world at large, you think, well, if this gospel is that good, in the way that Jesus is describing, it's a total renewal. Why is it that we don't see everything made new, even instantly? And I think Jesus starts to hint at this. He says in verse 20, I don't know if you noticed it right in the middle. He said, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. He's saying on the one hand, what I'm offering you is better than religion. I'm offering you this love, this joy, this power, in which everything is made new. But he's also warning us that you've not arrived at the end yet. And that means that there's going to be pain and frustration which gives birth to this, this longing. And that I don't think there's any more... You can never long for something more than when you decide to fast, right? If you, give, if you actually decide to stop eating for a while, that means you really, really want something. That's certainly true for me anyway. And, um, and Jesus is saying, look, people are going to... They're going to desire, they're going to desire what I can do, what I alone can do so badly that they're going to fast. They will fast. But it won't be the miserable fasting of the disciples. It'll be the fasting that's full of hope and longing and desire for Christ to bring about his promised and desired end. And that's exactly what you see happening when you see, read the rest of the New Testament. Hear these men. Jesus' disciples, the guys who went around with him feasting instead of fasting, and then he's taken away from them. This Lord who intoxicated them with who he was. They so loved him. They so enjoyed his company. They were so passionately committed to him. And then he's taken away. First in his death, and then he's given back to them in his resurrection. Then he's taken away again, ascended to heaven. What was the instinct of the early church in that time? They'd received all this goodness through Jesus and then he's not present anymore. Well, the New Testament shows us. You know, the New Testament was written in, in Koine Greek, a type of Greek that was the common Greek of the people across the Roman Empire. But there are basically a couple of phrases that survive from the Aramaic which Jesus and his disciples spoke when they were going about their daily lives. One of them is the word Abba, which we translate or understand to mean daddy or father. It's not a Greek word, but it's right there in the Greek New Testament because it so captures the essence of the newness of this experience of God as father that I guess they, it was so embedded in the Christian community that they couldn't replace it with a Greek word. It was just, it lived on. They all just learned the Aramaic. And another word is this word Maranatha, it crops up a couple of times in the New Testament. And Christians across the Roman world, you know, from Israel right the way through to Spain, would have prayed this Aramaic prayer, Maranatha, which means come, Lord, quickly. 
Because having tasted the goodness of Jesus in this new way, this new life, this new power, they now wanted the whole thing. They wanted all of him. You might think, well, that sounds a little bit almost cruel, right? That God would give us a taste of something so extraordinary, but then not give us the whole thing. And it's like, you know, you ever try something, and you, you just, you ever try something extraordinary, it's difficult to go back, try Wagyu beef. You never want to go back to the, those cheap sir, cuts of sirloin from the supermarket. You try extraordinary coffee with all the, the complex notes and the floral, the fruity flavors that come through. You know, for me, it's depressing to go on holiday around rural England and not be able to find a good cup of coffee anywhere because I've been spoiled for the good stuff. You think, well, maybe this is true for the Christians here. In the New Testament, even for us, you've tried something extraordinary that's changed your outlook of, 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 of everything, I suppose. And then, but you don't have him in, in fulfillment. You think, well, is that cruel? I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. I'll give you a few reasons. One reason is that waiting is better than wishing. To live life without having met Jesus is to live life in the hope of finding something that will fill, fill your heart and fill your soul. It's just a pure wish. But when you know Christ and you've, you've encountered him personally, you've tasted his goodness, as the New Testament puts it, you just want more. And so this longing that gives birth to fasting is, is the waiting rather than the wishing. It's not groping in the dark. It's no, your eyes are fixed now on the light. You just want to get there. Knowing is also better than guessing. I think one of the, the root reasons why people experience anxiety on a day-to-day basis, and it may be true for you that you're a worrier, is because of a deep uncertainty about the future. And our world is gripped in an epidemic of anxiety because people are constantly worried about what might happen or what could happen and all things that are outside of our control. But Christians aren't anxious about the future because there's a certainty to it. We're not guessing. We're knowing. And we know that the, cert- the end, everything terminates upon Jesus coming, his return, and his renewal of all things. This is what Christians have our eyes fixed upon. We've tasted his goodness, and now we say, come, Lord, quickly. Come and renew all things. Come and bring about your planned purposes on this world, and in my life also. Another way I could put it is this. Longing is better than dreading. This future that's full of uncertainty, if you think about it hard enough and you don't know Jesus, that future will be full of dread, and so it should be. Because bad things do happen and will happen. Things you cannot control. Things that will bring about suffering. And ultimately your death. But to know Jesus, to have, to have met him, is to have inside such a, a perfect hope that no longer is the future full of dread, but the future is full of, you're fixed with a desire and a longing which controls you. So when Jesus talks here about these disciples who, you know, these guys, you can picture them, can't you, in their intensity, those kind of slightly crazy look in their eyes. They are engaged in twice weekly fasting and this intense desire to be pious before the God who they wanted to please. And Jesus comes along and says, no, my disciples have tasted something extraordinary, so much better. But they will fast, but their fasting is going to have a different kind of quality to yours. It's the fasting that knows 
that God's going to come and renew all things. And so we have a desire. We have desire for heaven. We have a desire to see him face to face. We have a desire to experience his transforming power. It says that when we see him, we'll become like him. It talks about that happening in just the twinkling of an eye. That the transforming work of God, all the frustration, all the agony that you experience with yourself, which, you know, if you're anything like me, you are the main cause of grief in your own life, right? All of that will come to an end. This is why we fast. Jesus is going to change us in the spot. Ultimately, the desire to be in his presence. So yeah, we do still fast. We do still long. We do still yearn. There is still, there is still something deficient. But it's, it's that we know he's coming back to change and renew all things. Let me talk to you then as I close. If you're not a Christian, perhaps you recognize the kind of description of religion and devotion that was true of those disciples that came to ask Jesus the questions. It's something dry. It's something brittle. It's something that doesn't seem to have power and just seems to bring out misery and a sense of guilt and unworthiness. I want to encourage you, friend, it's because you've never encountered this gospel. God wants you to know his love for you in a way that overwhelms your heart. And renews you from the inside. And you can have that experience even this evening. It's not something reserved for a select few. It's on offer. God wants to welcome you into his family. And all it requires is that you recognize the lordship of Jesus. His death for you on the cross. His desire to clean your life up and receive his forgiveness. Christians, it may be the case you've forgotten some of this stuff. Your Christian life has begun to resemble something more like the old brittle way than the new way that's full of life and joy. And it may be the case you just need a corrective this evening to remember Christ came to do something new in us. He came to to renew us entirely. Why don't we bow our heads and pray? If you have any desire, you want to know more about becoming a Christian, I'd love to talk with you. But for us who know and love Jesus, this is a call to fresh love and commitment and adoration of our our great bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just pray together, shall we? Savior, we thank you. Your way is better. Trying to do religious life without you is exhausting and frustrating. We thank you, Lord, that you came to be nourishment to our bones, to our souls. You came to infuse and flood every part of our being. You came to do away with the old so that you could replace it with the new. And Lord, we need, we need a fresh experience and touch of your presence. Maranatha, come Lord. Come quickly. I want to pray, Lord, specifically that you'll renew the experience of love 
and of joy and of power in our spiritual walks. I pray, Lord, that you will help bring a smile, that kind of spring in the step in a spiritual sense that comes from a lively experience of your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't just set a harder path in front of us and then whip us like a man whips a donkey to work harder. Thank you that that's not the faith that we have. Lord, I pray for anybody who's felt that that was their experience of Christianity or has been their experience of Christianity. May they see it for what it is and get past that misapprehension so that they can meet you for the first time. We want to know you, Lord, your freeing power. And we pray for it in your precious name. Amen.